Everyone has an idea, but is it right? Everyone seems to know what a Christian is, how the Christian life should look, and what kind of place the church should be. But are we even close? What if we could know? What if it looks different than we think? What if what God is building is more than a group of good people, but a community? Join us as we walk through the book of Philippians and see together a beautiful community. Uh, grab a Bible if you've got one. Turn to the book of Philippians. Uh, kids ages 3 through pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship with Mrs. Gilmartin, who's somewhere. There she is. But like I said, the rest of you if, you, if you have a Bible, open it to Philippians. If you don't have a Bible, that's cool. It's, uh, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, as always, at least this is something we say around here a lot, there are, there are a number of them on the back table. We would love for you to grab one of those. That's our gift to you. But uh, let, let's, let's get it out in front of us if we can. We've been, we've been taking this season from, um, well, from the start of the, uh, like, right after Labor Day through now to, to look at the book of Philippians, the New Testament book of Philippians. What we've seen as we've looked at through this is a picture of what this community called the church is supposed to look like. Seems to be what Paul is consistently kind of pressing into us. And what we've been doing is we've been trying by the power of the Holy Spirit to let this book shape us. Um, this morning... We come to what I think, quite frankly, is one of the most beautiful passages in all of the New Testament. And it's beautiful because of how it so clearly uh, brings to light not only the central message of the Christian faith, what we call the gospel, but, but actually then uh, gives an opportunity more than any other passage maybe to help us see the shape that the gospel makes in our lives. And what we're going to find is that it makes a cross shape. So if you have your place in Philippians, uh, we're in chapter 3. If you'd stand, that's our habit here. In honor of God's Word, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 11 of chapter 3. This is God's Word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. But look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for the mutilators, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, persecutor of the church." As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I might know him. The power of his resurrection may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, with whatever we're bringing as we come into this place, we ask that you'd meet us right there. Because we're bringing lots of stuff. 
We're bringing the normal stuff that just kind of comes along with living in a broken world as broken people. Some of us are bringing heartache and tragedy into this room. We don't know where else to go. We don't know where else to turn. We're not even really sure why we're here. Others of us are here because we are so excited about what you're doing in our lives and in the lives of those that we know that we're here to worship and praise you. Lord, we exist on this spectrum. Most of us are somewhere in the middle of that. I pray, Father, that you would meet us by your Spirit right where we are, that you would preach your gospel to us and that you would... Uh, conform us to the image of Christ this morning. Lord, by your grace, work in us that which we cannot work in ourselves. We come and we lay our lives before you and ask that you would speak. We surrender our hearts to you even now and we ask that you would meet us. Lord, let Christ in all that he has done come to the fore and let the one who speaks fall to the wayside. For Jesus, you alone hold the words of eternal life and so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Look, this morning, I don't really, it doesn't really matter whether you are here this morning and you're a Christian and you're here and you're not, or maybe you're here and you've always considered yourself a Christian, but maybe you're not a practicing uh, Christian in the sense that, like, you don't, you believe in God, but you're not really, uh, you're not really a church person. Uh, that's great. We, we, we are a church for lots of different kinds of people, right? We're a church for, for folks who are, who are passionate about what they believe. We're a church for folks who aren't sure what they believe. And we're a church for, for folks who are, are passionately unsure about what they believe, okay? So, so we're kind of here for everybody. But no matter where you are this morning, I doubt that there are many of us in this room who woke up this morning and thought to, thought to ourselves, I wonder how I could be evil today, right? That's probably not a thought that crossed most of our minds, I mean, maybe you struggle with being a sociopath, and if so, we can find help for you. But that's probably not most of us. Most of us probably wake up, and whether or not we think it or not, we probably order our lives to some degree around the idea of like, man, what, what does the good life look like? And by the good life, I don't mean that which satisfies us fully. I mean, how can I do good today? How can I, how can I do that kind of thing? It, it, and in, in some cases, this is, this is an incredibly relevant question. What, is, what does the life look like that's pleasing to God? Now, again, some of us here, we don't believe in God. That's cool. But let me just say this. Like, even if you don't, that's a relevant question. Because uh, if, if there is a God, that question matters a ton. If there isn't, what does it hurt? <laughs> right? And so what I, it, this, this question is also timely. Because what we, what we just witnessed, if, uh, I don't know, what is it, about 15, 20 minutes ago, maybe a half an hour, where all these kids walking down, waving their palms, is a reenactment of what happened on Palm Sunday, in which people back then were, were asking the same question that I just proposed. And in that case, it was, what would the kingdom of God look like? What would the, the, the kind of the rule that God wants, what would that look like? What would the kind of people that could live in that kingdom, what would they look like? What would I need to look like to be a part of that? The people had an idea of what God's king would be because they had an idea of what God's kingdom would be. But God had a different plan. And we see the same thing here in this passage. Paul is going to take some time to unmask everything that we think God would think is awesome. And instead, show us something with a different shape to it. So we're going to look at this in three ways this morning. I know some of you are stunned by that. But we're going to look at uh, three different things. There's, a, there's an outline in your bulletin, if that's helpful. We're going to look at the expected shape. Then we're going to look at the unexpected shape. 
and then we're going to look at a cruciform shape. Okay, and I'll explain those as we go. All right? First off, let's look at what we would expect, the expected shape. Look down at verses 1 to 3. This section begins in, in the letter, okay? So let's zoom out for a minute. We're looking at the letter as a whole. If you're reading through Philippians, chapter 3 begins Paul's section that I would call the, oh, and one more thing section, right? So he's done most of what he's trying to accomplish, and then he's like, oh, oh, hold on, one more thing, all right? So this is, this is super important to us. Paul says this, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators, all right, now most of us are thinking like, duh. Like, you know, you know I mean, the reality is that it isn't as if the, the Philippians were throwing parties, right? And we're like, you know what? We need to invite mutilators. Let's find some mutilators and get them into my party because that's what I want. Uh, Paul has something specific in mind, okay? The first term, dog. It's not just an insult. I know it's like, man, that's, an, that's really insulting. Well, it's actually worse than that because in the ancient Near East, you didn't have dogs for pets, they would have thought we're really weird. Like dogs are the kind of... Dogs were like vultures in the ancient world. They were dirty, nasty, and ate stuff they shouldn't. And so you definitely didn't want them kissing you, uh, which you know, many of us enjoy. But that, that, wasn't, that wasn't what you did if you were in the ancient Near East. But the term, this term dogs, was used by Jews to describe those who weren't Jews. Gentile Dogs. So it was not just an insult, it was an exceptional insult, especially if you're Jewish. So the second phrase, evildoers, is the same. Jewish folks would use that to speak of folks who weren't Jewish, because they, if, if God had revealed what was good in his law, then those who didn't do it did what was not good, which we call evil, right? So they were evildoers. Now, then he says this last one, mutilators. Or, uh, you know, in, in the ESV it says, those who mutilate the flesh. So the first two phrases he's using that would be typical Jewish ways to speak about non-Jewish people. But when he talks about the mutilators, he's talking about Jews. Those who mutilate the flesh. Now remember, Paul is a Jew, right? He, he was, and he's going to talk about this in a minute. He is the Hebrew of Hebrews. He's like, if there's anyone who can claim to be Jewish, I'm the dude. He's raised as a Jew. He placed his faith in Jesus, but, which we're going to get to in a second. But right now, Paul is saying, look out for these Jewish guys. Now, the reason for that is kind of bound up in the history of what would go on. So Paul would go out through the Mediterranean world. He started as a violent persecutor of the faith. Again, we're going to get to that in a second. In other words, he, he hated Christianity. He tried to put it down became a Christian, and then went throughout the Mediterranean world trying to start churches. And you start churches by making disciples, by making new Christians, making converts. And he would then raise up churches, and and he would preach this free grace of God in Jesus. And then when he'd move on to start churches in some other city, typically what we see in the New Testament is other teachers would move in. They would move in on his turf. They um, They were primarily from a Jewish background. And they would come behind him and say to these new Christians, they would say, oh, Oh, you want to be part of the people of God? That's so good. Jesus, love him. But you do know that to be part of the people of God, you have to do what's pleasing to God, and that means you've got to follow all these rules, right? Just come on, just follow these rules like us. And so, you know, the New Testament book of Galatians is all about this. So when Paul talks about the dogs, the evildoers, and the mutilators, he's talking about 
that group of people. These people that are moving in and trying to teach something different. The word mutilator gives it away, right? Because the defining mark of being a Jewish male in the first century was circumcision. It was a religious thing at the time. But do you notice the way he described them? He's talking about Jews. But he didn't describe them as Jews, did he? He said they were the dogs. They're not the Jews. They're the, they're the Gentiles. They're, they're not the doers of good. They're the, they're the evildoers. He describes them as if they are not who they think they are. And there's a reason for that. Look at verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision. Again, the way that they would normally talk about being the people of God. Part of Abraham's family. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, we Christians, the followers of God's Messiah, are the actual people of God. Now, there's probably a couple of us here in this room who, who might get the impact of this. So let me, let me try and make it clear for the other 98% of us. Okay? If you were a Jew in the first century, here's what you knew. You knew that the world was broken. Okay? Then now... All, most of us in this room figure that one out, right? But if you're a Jew in the first century, you knew the world was broken. You knew that God made it good, made us good, but that we broke the world. We broke ourselves by betraying God, right? We betrayed God. We turned away from him. That's what the Bible calls sin. I know most of us, we hear that three-letter word, and we grew up learning that sin means breaking rules. But in the Bible, that is also true. Sin is primarily about breaking a relationship. It's primarily about breaking a relationship with God. And so, we betrayed God, we turned away from him, and we broke the world. But if you're a first century Jew, you also knew, not just that we broke it, because we all kind of get that, but that God promised to fix it. That he promised right there to fix this problem, and he began working out that promise through this dude named Abraham and his family. And that family later came to be called Jews. And they received from God a law, a law that showed how God, uh, on the one hand, it showed how, how God had intended humanity to be. How he intended us to be in the world. Not, not, let me reiterate, that law was not ever meant as a means by which to get right with God. It was, on the one hand, a way to show us what we were meant to be. And on the other hand, to kind of consistently um, reiterate for us the fact that things were not right. And that God was going to come and make them right. And so if you were a first century Jew, you were waiting for God to do just that. Make things right. So if you were looking at these guys, the guys that Paul is talking about, the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators, here's what you would think if you're Joe Blow Pagan, like most of us probably would have been, okay? You're, you're thinking you would see them as strict, fairly conscious, conscientious of rules, and full of hope if you talk to them about it that God was coming to settle accounts one day. Okay? So, in our, in our society, these would be like, these were the really religious folks. All right, if you're not really religious, you came to this place, you're thinking, yeah, that's like most of the people in this room, right? They're the really religious folks. Folks who come to church on Sunday. These folks knew what pleased God, and they were good with doing these things. And here comes Paul. And he says that these folks, these really religious folks who are doing all the things that, that they think God is really pleased with, that they're actually not part of God's people. Because they're not placing their faith in Jesus. But instead, that these folks that Paul is writing to, these Philippians, these what would have been known as the unwashed Gentiles, 
that they actually, who, 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 who bear none of the literal marks of what it means to be part of the people of God, that they're actually part of God's people. This is scandalous if you're a first century Jew. Now, here's the thing. If you hear that, and you are one of these dogs, you are one of these really religious folks, what you're probably thinking to yourself is sour grapes. Because when, when you and I tend to see someone who, um, who, who has their life in order, right? They, they do all things right. They keep the rules well. They live really responsibly. Live, live really disciplined. What do we normally think? Well, they, they're not as good as what they think they are. Or they probably don't have any fun with life anyway. It's like sour grapes. And we, because we can't cut it, we look at them and go, eh, God doesn't really want that. And that would be an easy thing to think if you're a Jewish person hearing Paul say, look out for these po- f- people because we're the real people of God. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just couldn't cut it. Ah. Contraire, says Paul. The reality is, is that if we, if we ever come near someone more disciplined than us, more moral than us, more whatever than us, we probably think to ourselves, oh, that can't be healthy. Or they probably have no fun. And that is why Paul gives us his resume. Look down at verses 4 to 5. Paul says that Christians don't boast in the flesh. Now that word flesh in, um, in, the, in the Bible, in the New Testament especially, is a technical term. It doesn't mean your, your skin. You know, It doesn't mean your material body. It means that part of you that's that, that lives independently of God, okay? We'll come back to that in a second. He says, Paul, does, Paul says, Christians don't boast in the flesh. But if anyone could, it would be me. The first three things he mentions, he mentions a bunch of them. The first three things he mentions are about being born into the right family, okay? Look down at those. He says, he is um, circumcised on the eighth day. It means he's faithfully Jewish, Okay? He's, he, is, he, is a, he is an Israelite. He is of the tribe of Benjamin. What that means is that Paul could actually trace his lineage to one of the original 12 tribes. Not every Jew could do that. Some weren't actually ever part of one of the tribes. They became Jewish. They became Jewish later. But the, for many of them, the, the idea of the tribal thing had been so long ago and they had been dispersed through the world for so long that they had no clue where they were. Paul did. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, okay? Which is another way of saying, like, this is the third generation dude whose grandpappy built the church, right? This, this, is, this is the guy who's, who's just been raised in it. He's as good as they come. Like, he is, he's got good, good blood. The next ones, though, show not that he was born in the right family. They show his personal devotion, okay? He says, first and foremost... As to the law, I was a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee was one branch of Judaism that was very focused on the law. Okay? These were your Bible scholars. These were the guys who were like nitpicky about the Bible, knew all the rules, knew how to keep them. Not only that, they believed that in keeping the law and in getting others to, you could actually get God to act to set the world straight. Think about that for a second. You had a hope that God was going to one day come and fix the world. And you looked around, you saw how broken everything was. And then you go, but but I know how to make him work. If I just keep the rules enough, and I get other people to keep the rules enough, then God's going to come and do what we want. So he's a Pharisee. He says in terms of zeal, he persecuted the church. Here's what that means. We all know that there are some folks who believe what they believe. And they kind of keep it quiet. 
And when, when things come up that don't quite go with what they believe, they're like, eh, you know? And then there are other folks who are so devoted as to what they believe that they actually follow through those beliefs logically. That was Paul. That's why he had to persecute Christians. Because he saw them as sabotaging what he believed and winning other people to do the same. They're they're turning God's people away from God. That's what he thought. These people are so dangerous. They're coming and they're turning God's people away from God. They're keeping God from coming to make things right. I've got to stop them. So he did. By killing them. Imprisoning them. This wasn't your average, just nominal Jew. (laughs) As to zeal, he was willing to to shed blood for it. And then he says the kicker. As to the righteousness that comes from the law, blameless. Now, here's the thing. Paul did not think he was perfect. Okay, We hear blameless and righteousness, and it's churchy talk, and we think... Man, Paul had a really high opinion of himself. Like he thought he was perfect. No, 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 not at all. The righteousness of the law means a faithfulness to it, keeping it, including making sacrifices for your sin. The point that Paul is making is that he saw himself as having arrived. Yeah, sure, he he knew he wasn't perfect, but he was good. He was real good. When he messed up, he did what God told him to do when people mess up. Which means at the end of the day, he was doing just fine. He's keeping the rules just fine. Like many of us probably think we are doing. And so do you, do you see why Paul gives this resume? He had no problem with it. He's not going around the Mediterranean world preaching the free grace of God in Jesus because he's like, Oh, the law is way too hard. Y'all can't do that. Yeah. In his mind, he did. He did exactly what it said to do, including when he knew, like, I know I'm not perfect, so I'll sacrifice something. He did it all. If God likes the rule keeper, if God expects us to be rule keepers, then Paul was doing just fine. Paul is saying what he says because he couldn't make the cut. He couldn't make the cut because he realized that the problem was deeper than his rule keeping. Paul says what he says because ultimately rules aren't the issue. Our problem isn't broken rules. It's a broken relationship and new rules can never fix a relationship. That brings us to the unexpected shape. Okay? So that's the, that's the shape that we expect. We expect it to be about what Paul just said. And he said, no, 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 that's not it at all. Instead, it's the unexpected one. Paul says this uh, in verse 8. He, see, he says, you see all I had accomplished? See all that? I counted it as loss. It went in the loss column. That's not in the, that's not in the profit column. That's in the loss column. And in place of that, we have something else. The shape of the life that God is pleased with. And first thing we see about that is it's relational. Look at verse 8. Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing, and if you have your Bibles, underline that word knowing, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, look, all that stuff, that may be okay. That may be fine. But it is nothing 
in light of knowing Jesus. And in the worldview of the Bible, to know something is not to know about it. It's not an information-gathering event. To know something is, is an intimacy. There's an intimacy there. It's, you know, it's the same way that in the... Um, uh, oftentimes, especially in the Old Testament, the word that they would use to describe uh, the uh, exclusive relationship between a husband and wife, if you know what I mean, they called it knowing, right? Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore him a son. Knowing is an intimate thing. It is about knowing, it is about loving. And so Paul continues, for his sake, that's for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things so that, underline that too, so that I might gain Christ. Okay, now this is confusing, so stick with me. The Bible says, and I kind of re- I said it a second ago, let me reiter- reiterate. The Bible says that first and foremost, our problem as people is not, let me say that again, it is not that we aren't moral. Our problem is not that we aren't moral. That is a symptom of our problem. The problem is that we are alienated from God. We were made for dependence on him. We were made to love and be loved by him. But we have betrayed him and turned away from him. And Paul is saying, this is so hard for us to get. Paul is saying that our law keeping, our rule keeping, far from actually drawing us near to God, can actually pull us away from him. That's huge. Because when you and I tend to think about people who are far from God, we think of train wreck life, dude, right? We think of a guy who's, who's waking up in the gutter, uh, you know, having messed himself, and he's just there, and he's been there all night, and he's not sure how he got there. That's who we think of, right? Far from God. And that's, you know, that's probably the case. Because that is when we are independent of God by saying, I don't want you. I don't want you. I don't want you. I don't want you. So I'm going to go do what I want. The Bible, though, says that we can be independent of God also by being really moral. And that's what Paul's saying here. It's not an independence that says, God, I don't want you. It's an independence that says, God, I don't need you. It's not saying that, God, I don't, I don't, I don't want you to satisfy me. It's a God that's saying, I don't need your status. I don't need you. I'm doing just fine. And Paul is saying, I had to count all of my law-keeping as what the ESV says is rubbish. Rubbish. Can you tell us the English standard version, right? Rubbish. The word is scubula in the Greek. It means dung. I'm not sure if I can say anything more than that. I'm a preacher. In other words, what he's saying is that all that rule-keeping is one shiny brown pile on the floor. You thought it was great. You shine it up real nice. Woo! Still stinks. Right? And Paul is saying, I had to count everything I did as that so that I could know Christ. So the shape is relational, but it's also vicarious. Look down at verse 9. He says, and to be found in him, we don't have time to talk about the grammar shift there, but it's so important. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, In other words, something I did. But that which comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I know some of your translations are a little different there. Trust me on that one. It comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now stop there. Okay? We've betrayed God. We've talked about that. We've betrayed God. 
and we need to return to him. But the problem is that we can't. We are helpless. And so the Bible says we need a rescuer, and that's what Jesus is. Because we can't live the righteous life that God is looking for. In other words, the, the, the one that's completely dependent on him. Jesus comes and does that in our place. Look, we always talk about Jesus coming and dying for sins. This next week is pr- pretty much all about that, right? And especially Friday, we're going to focus a ton on the cross. And the cross is important. It's huge. But it's not everything. It, when we see the cross as everything, what we do is we go, you know, those years that Jesus lived, it really didn't matter. If he was just born and kind of found himself on a cross one day, that would probably be great. We don't need all that's in between. But the gospel says we do. You see, when we, when we place our faith in Jesus, we are united to him. United to him. Meaning that what is true of him becomes true of us. Okay, This is why Jesus is not the one who shows us the way to God. He is the way. He is the way. Because we are united to him. What is true of him becomes true of us. His dependent life, his righteousness, when we are united to him, becomes ours. You see that? If our problem is that we are independent of God, listen to me, if our problem, if the Bible's right, and that's a big if for some of us in the room, but let's say it is. If, 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 our, if the Bible's right that our problem is that we are independent of God, no amount of independent law-keeping, no amount of independent morality can make that right. You can't do it on your own. It makes the problem worse. But when we place our faith in Christ, when we return to dependence on God, and Christ's dependent life, his perfect life, is credited to us, what that means is that whether you are train wreck dude or church lady, we get the same thing. Because whether you are train wreck dude or church lady, you're in the same position. And so we have the same solution, trusting alone in Jesus Christ. And then these last two verses show us how it plays out. Okay, look down at verses 10 and 11. Paul says, that I may know him. And sometimes, uh, there are, look, most of the times that we read our English translations, they are they are fine. There's, we're, we're missing nothing. And then there's every once in a while where there's this little piece that is just so hard to get into English. This is one of them. If you're reading in the original, it's as if Paul takes a break and he says, oh, that I might know him. It's like the, the phrase makes no sense in terms of the grammar of the sentence. It's as if he's pausing, ah, oh, that I might know him both in the power of his resurrection and the participation of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, this can be confusing, so check back in if you checked out. Paul says he wants to know Jesus, okay? Again, that's intimate knowledge. It's not knowing about. It's not being able to recite the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed or some other, like, countless iteration of all of these, not this, but this, not this, but this. It's knowledge, knowing, being known by a person, not a proposition, Okay. He wants to know, not just part of Jesus in his story, but to experience the power of his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings. He, what this means is he wants his life to begin to look like Jesus' life. And that's what he means by when he says, becoming like him in his death. Now, 
Paul was many things. A dude with a death wish, he was not. Okay? He had lots of work to do. He was not a dude with a death wish. Nor was he someone who was so nutty that he's thinking, you know what, if only I could die through crucifixion. The most painful and humiliating way anyone could die. I hope that happens to me. It's not what he means. Okay? He means that when you see yourself as lost, as helpless, as drowning, but rescued by the God that you've betrayed, you want to be like him. And so when Paul says, I want to be, be conformed to, to the image of his death, to become like him in his death, he means to look, he wants his life to look like the character of Jesus' death. He wants his life in some way to be shaped like a cross. He wants his life to take the shape of seeking the flourishing of others at cost to himself. To love God and to love others without regard to himself. Friends, that is what knowing Jesus is all about. When you know him, maybe more importantly, when you've come to be known by him, you begin to show him to others. In fact, your life must take the shape of his. Now, here's where this text pushes us to take this shape. I want to talk about two ways. First, taking the identity. Paul is, is boasting um, about the fact that all of his amazing rule-keeping was worthless. He wants his faithfulness, that his faithfulness to be found in Jesus. He wants it to be Jesus' faithfulness. So let me ask you something. No matter where you are in your, uh, in your walk with Jesus, whether, whether you're still investigating who he is or you've been walking with him longer than I've been alive, where is your faithfulness? Where is your righteousness? And don't say you don't think you need it. Like, ah, righteousness. I don't need a righteousness. Of course you do. We all boast in a righteousness. Whether we're Christians or not, you have a reason, just like I do, that you think you're doing pretty good. Ah, you're not perfect, but you're doing all right. Right? Maybe that righteousness is your morality. You're like, I don't need God to be moral. I'm great. I'm doing good. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's your authenticity. Oh, yeah, I'm not the most moral person in the world, but at least I'm honest about it. I'm like those hypocrites in the church. Or maybe it's your tolerance. Or your loyalty. You might even be a Christian here this morning and have this. And, and what I mean by that is for you, it, it, maybe it isn't what makes you right with God. Because you're like, Rick, I got this. I know that Jesus alone makes me right with God. But maybe it's what makes you more right with God once you're in. Maybe it's what keeps you right with God. Maybe it's not what initially makes you pleasing to God, but maybe it's what you think will make him more pleased with you. Or what, when you haven't done it, makes him less pleased with you. Or, makes you, or shows how mature you are in the faith. And so for Christians in the room, maybe it's not, you know, uh, authenticity or all that stuff. Maybe it's stuff like, well, I read my Bible. I don't, you know, I know a lot of theology. If you were raised as in, in kind of our tradition, in our, maybe it's like, well, I know those catechism questions and answers. And if you don't know what those are, don't worry about it. Like, but what is it? What is it that you go, like, I know God is pleased with me when I do these things. And I know when he's not pleased with me because I haven't done those things. 
Friends, if you read the Bible, if you read the Gospels, what kept people away from Jesus in the Gospels was not their sin. He came to die for sin. He was fully aware of it. When people approach him as a sinner, he's like, I know, right? That's why I'm here. He isn't surprised or repulsed by sin. It isn't their sin that kept people away from Jesus. It was their damnable righteousness. It was that which said, I'm doing okay. My prayer life is good. I understand the Bible. I'm good at my job. I I manage my money well. I, I, I know the right things to say. When people ask how I'm doing, fine. Thank you very much, Jesus. I don't need you, but it would be nice to have you on my team. Paul says that he considered all of his great religious resume as dung so that he could gain Christ. And what I just said, I don't want you to miss. He considered it that big, shiny, brown pile so that he could gain Christ. You cannot gain Christ while you're holding on to your own righteousness. You can't cling to your record, what makes you great, and then somehow fit Jesus into it. You've got to let go of all of those things. You've got to let go of all those independent acts, all those ways of making yourself great, so that you can gain Christ, so that you can grow with Christ. Let it go. The status he gives you is so much better than yours, than mine. And it is given freely to you. That's taking the identity. Lastly, I want to talk about living the pattern. We say this all the time here at Holy Cross. So if if you've been here a while, this may be redundant. But we need to keep saying it. The order of things is so important. If you try and live the pattern without taking the identity, all you are is creating your own righteousness. But if we have left our own righteousness behind seeing the exceeding greatness of Jesus, then we are free to live into this cross-shaped, this cruciform pattern that he talks about. From the 30,000-foot view, what does it look like, then, to live the pattern that Paul's talking about? I want to be conformed to the... I want, to, I want my life to be conformed to the image of his death. How do we do that? Well, the 30,000-foot view, it means living a life that seeks the flourishing of others, even at cost to yourself. You remember what we talked about a couple of weeks ago with what Jesus did? What did Jesus do? He used all of his rights, his power, his privileges, his possessions, his gifts, his godness. He used all of it. He used everything so that we might, become, so that we might flourish. Becoming more like Jesus will be this. But the problem is that when we think about becoming more like Jesus depending upon your presuppositions, and to some extent, depending upon your um, generation, that's going to fall somewhere on the spectrum of believing we either need to be more moral or more tolerant. Right? If we're going to be more like Jesus, we need to be either more moral or more tolerant. But here's the problem with that. Morality never looks beyond itself. Does it? Me being moral is about me. How good I am. How good I can do. It never looks to the other. Except insofar as my attitude towards them affects me. 
It's about me. And tolerance, if by tolerance we mean um, kind of, uh, you know, uh, letting people stay as they are always, it just leaves people in their brokenness. Does it think they're flourishing? No. Not at all. At the end of the day, that's really all about me. So that I can be seen a certain way. Was Jesus moral? Absolutely. Was he tolerant? If by that you mean, did he hang out with broken people? Yes, because if he didn't, he wouldn't have hung out with anyone. But both of those leave people where they are. Jesus did what he did to see people reconciled to God. Now, of course, you and I can't do exactly what he did. I can't die for anyone's sins. I don't even dare to die for my own. That's why I look to Christ. But Paul is saying that to be conformed to the pattern of Jesus' death will mean seeking to see our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our fellow students, everyone around us flourish. And we empty ourselves for that. But here's the reality. If you're, if, if you're here this morning and this doesn't seem this way to you, maybe you're not hearing it. Because this is really bizarre. When we hear Paul give his resume, it seems powerful, doesn't it? Respectful. Ideal. Certainly that's what God would want, isn't it? Someone who keeps the rules well? Isn't that, isn't that what God would want? That's the, that's the exact thing the crowds on Palm Sunday were thinking. As Jesus is coming in and he's riding there like, certainly, certainly what God would want is for this son of David that we're singing Hosanna to, to be a powerful king like Caesar, Right? It's going to be powerful. Certainly he's going to take up the throne and throw down the Romans. But Jesus' work was different. And this is so key for us, especially right now, as we think about the pattern that Paul is talking about, that what the life that is pleasing to God, the life that is godly, is a life that it looks like Jesus' death. <laughs> this is so key for us because right now, the Christians everywhere are freaking out. Because we're feeling like we're losing all of our cultural influence. And so we fall into the same trap that these crowds did. We're sick of being bullied, so we want someone to be a bully for us. When's Jesus going to rise up and bully other people for us and give us back our influence? Friends, you cannot have the crown without the cross. You cannot be an influencer without being a servant. Not if you want to follow Jesus. That is his way. And if we are to be conformed to his image, that must be our way as well. A little bit of trivia. This church is called Holy Cross because of this passage of Scripture. Because way back in the beginning, we, as we were reading this, we thought this, this is what we aspire to be. A church in our city laying down our lives to see other people flourish. If we could be that, that would be awesome. The gospel frees us to return to dependence on God, not just for salvation, friends, but for what it looks like to love and serve the world, what it looks like to be more like Jesus. And what it looks like is a cross. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we hear this, uh, we... Well, the reality is we, we, we don't want to live it. 
I don't. I know my friends probably don't either. We want our own status. We want our own righteousness. Because we have control of that. We don't have to trust anyone for that. We're scared to do that. But you've called us to trust you, to depend on you, to live a life of dependence on you. And, and certainly we, we would rather have the crown without the cross. We want to follow the temptation that Satan gave you in the wilderness. Look, I, you can have all the kingdoms of the world if you just bow the knee to me. Do things my way, Jesus. Jesus, you were good enough to say, no, 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 no. Not at all. I'm going to do things the way of the Father. I'll have that crown, but it'll be through the cross. Would you give us the grace, Lord, to believe the same? Would you give us uh, the perspective, the courage, and the freedom in the gospel to follow you in doing the same for those around us? We need you for this. And so we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.